0: Welcome to the Filling the Power podcast. Uh, I'm Greg Ashman, and uh, today I have a very special guest, um, Andrew Old. Now, Andrew Old is based in the UK, and um, we're starting to open up a little bit here now in Australia with the lockdown. Well, what are things like there, Andrew?
1: Um, there are some schools opening for some years, but it's very, very limited. And if anything, uh, the amount of kids coming in, we're beginning to back off how many people are coming in so um i'm not teaching at the moment or at least not teaching in in school at the moment and it's quite possible even by september things will still be very limited
0: gosh gosh so you're still kind of in the midst of it here in in new zealand they've actually managed to eliminate the virus completely and we're down to fairly low numbers but there's still a little bit of um community transmission in Victoria says so People are still a bit concerned about that. Look, um, just to introduce you a little bit, uh, in case anyone has not heard of you, which is, I think is unimaginable, if they've been on Edu EduTwit, Twitter is that what we say? Um, but um, you're Andrew Old, uh, you have been blogging longer than I have. So when I was starting out writing my first blog back in 2012, um, you were already established and you had quite a lot of followers. And in fact, um, you got hold of one of my early blog posts, which I wrote about textbooks, and I don't know if you remember that at all. But you, um, I think you reshared it or reblogged it or something, and all of a sudden I had all these people reading my blog post, whereas I'd been kind of howling into the wind prior to that. Um, how did you get into um, blogging and, and writing about education and all that kind of business?
1: It started with um, the forums for the TES newspaper. There were a lot of teachers on there talking and a lot of arguments. And it, it became obvious that there were voices there from the classroom that are very different to the national debate. And I was one of those voices, and I just wanted it to reach a bit of a wider audience. At the time, I don't, there was not much in the way of public debate from a classroom perspective. I think things have changed massively since back then. That was 13 years ago. But I would say even as recently as 2012, 2013, there were some positions you just didn't see challenged that much. It was considered the accepted wisdom. In, in my time, I've been blogging, the, the huge changes in culture in um, English education. And what... And what...
0: What sort of changes? Uh, how, how have those changes come about? Like, what, what's it look like? I mean, I remember I left, I left the UK in twenty ten, so I left a system where, oh well, I wasn't on social media, um, so the only teachers I talked to regularly were the teachers within my own school, and that was very parochial. So it's so all you didn't really talk about these bigger educational issues because it was more, um, it, it, well, you did, but in, it was all wrapped up in politics and who was in and who was out and that sort of, and it was all about that particular organization. Uh, And it wasn't until 2012 that I actually got into social media and started talking to other teachers more widely outside of my own network. So what, how did that all happen? How did that all change? And and what were the sorts of changes that you would uh, point to?
1: I think, The big change was that there was a change of government in 2010, and suddenly, that people were aware that the system was not the same all the way down, all the way up. I think before then there'd been a bit more uniformity in the system, and if you were speaking against the consensus at one level, you'd be supported from above, or sorry, you'd be opposed from above and below. So that was possibly one of the changes. But I think the other thing is just the sheer quantity of teachers on social media. So as I say, there were already forums where teachers would speak to each other. But with the growth of blogging and the growth of social media, um, generally, particularly Twitter, the number of teachers who were expressing an opinion in public um, grew exponentially. There was, there, I can think back now, even say 2011, 2012, where I would say something that I would expect most teachers agree with and there'd be an outcry, how dare you say that, no one thinks that. The one that sticks in my mind was saying that a lot of inset talks by consultants were boring and unhelpful, or, or worse to that effect. Yeah. And there was an absolute yeah. outrage back then. And now, in fact, even I would say three years later than that, everyone says that because everyone knows teachers don't enjoy being lectured by someone if they're not being told something useful. Yeah. It's, you know, it, it's, it's a common opinion in every staff room and always has been.
0: Yeah, we have but, for our, to maintain our teacher registration in Victoria. We just have a number of hours of we call it professional development here that we have to do. And it's just a number of hours. Like what kind of system? Like doesn't matter what it is. <laughs> You've just got to do so many hours.
1: Yeah, uh, the, the one that, I mean, it still goes on, but the one that teachers will always detest is a behaviour trainer that comes in and says the way to get good behaviour is to really care about the kids yeah. and just imply that all the behaviour problems in the school are down to the teachers and them not caring enough. Yeah. And there are managers that buy into that who, who don't take the lead on behaviour and just treat it as a personal, possibly a moral failing on the part of the teaching staff. And Which is... is
0: no, I'm yeah, just saying it is absurd because so, they'll talk at that one level like that, but then at the other level they will talk about um, the kinds of traumas that kids would suffer or the kinds of backgrounds that they come from. But teachers can't possibly be responsible for that. So, so poor behaviour can't both be caused by the, t- the teacher in the classroom not caring enough, but by also by all
1: these other factors. The te- you, you, that doesn't work. Well, I think that as long as no one was saying the school leadership could do something about behaviour, they were happy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, sometimes you, you do find that the attitude that kids cannot control their behaviour is somehow tied up with the idea that if teachers just cared more then those deep-rooted problems in their background would be solved almost like your their parents and their background and society have corrupted these kids and all they need is one teacher to care for them and their behavior will be transformed and in the hour a week you teach some geography or whatever you can be that teacher um it's it's a transformative savior role for teachers
0: but it's a bit hollywood isn't it it's and it's I, i connect it to so if you see a teacher on the tv they won't be talking well they might be i don't think i can remember seeing it they won't be talking about how to teach lessons effectively or how to you know the stuff of teaching. They'll be on the TV because someone will be patting them on the head, saying, "Oh, this guy's a hero. This 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 woman's gone out of her way. She's um you know she's she's opened up her home to a, a trillion uh, kids at the weekend, and she's cooking them all breakfast. And isn't she marvelous?" And that's that's how I think the public want to see teachers. They don't want to to see us as professionals with professional knowledge that we can talk about, and um, that they want other people to have that. So they want the consultants and the academics and the newspaper pundits to play that role. And they just want us to be marvellous Hollywood characters who we go into the class and all the kids hate us, but because we listen to them and we try and understand them, then we win them round and then the end credits roll and there's some you know, great tune that we can all feel emotional about. Um, and I think, I think they're two sides of the same coin.
1: yes um i think though sometimes it turns up in places you wouldn't expect it you know the public are possibly a bit more realistic about teachers whereas i've i've seen local authorities put out behaviour advice that has a big section on love <laughs> now it's not it's not that you shouldn't care and feel love for your students although Sometimes when you're talking about people teaching 300 kids, it's a difficult word to use. Yeah. But it's not a policy. You can. It's, it's like telling a comedian to be more funny, telling yeah. a teacher to care more about their students. It's, it's not advice you can act on. Mm. Also, acting on it may not actually help matters. And teaching well is... Something that's probably more important to focus on, rather than um, trying to qualify for. Uh, I was going to say sainthood, but perhaps martyrdom is, yes, is a better. Yes, it's
0: term. more martyrdom, buried under a pile of marking. Are you reminding me of um, a paper by Gregory Yates of the University of South Australia called "How Obvious"? And he's um, he's an educational psychologist. He wrote a book with John Hattie, um, and in this paper, he talks about. Um, the fact that when he presents his findings about how kids learn best and what effective teachers do, everyone says, oh, that's obvious. That's just absolutely obvious. What, what, we didn't even need to hear this. We, why did you bother doing the research? We knew this all already. But when he asks people, um, you know, to identify the features of the most effective teachers, particularly, you know, I don't sh- think he uses exactly that. He might use the word effective, but something along those lines. So, you know, who, who have an effect in the classroom. They so, you know, that they're really caring or they, um, you know, that they want the best for their students. or And he says that those things are basic to all teachers. Like, okay, some teachers don't have it and they probably shouldn't be in the job, but that's like a baseline. And the effective stuff is not about that. The effective stuff is, in addition to that, how you communicate, how you break things down, how you sequence. Um, and I think that's an interesting observation, Is again, that fits in with – this kind of dynamic
1: and yeah, no, i can definitely see that um I, I i tend to think a lot of the time that we view um how teaching works in in cliches it's it's not even a folk psych- psychology because a folk psychology is intuitive but perhaps not empirically confirmed whereas the the teacher psychology um, is often against it's not even intuitive it's not even what we see day to day it's just the thing we should really believe even if there's no evidence for them and we can see that it's not actually true and and things like if you care enough the kids will behave would be an example of that but also if you enjoy the lesson you'll remember what you were taught would be an example of that yes yes yeah i mean you could probably list all the myths about learning and a lot of them you think about it it's not a bulk from the blue it's not something you've never seen before it's like we see it day to day if we had time to stop and think about it and um, develop our practice and get feedback we'd probably get it right anyway And yet it's become both something told from above and something we feel we have to pay lip service to.
0: Well, well, it all all makes makes you a, a social constructivist, doesn't it? Because this whole set of notions about what teaching is and should be has been socially constructed. It doesn't come from empirical research and it doesn't come from common sense or traditional ideas. It's been concocted in some way by somebody I'm not quite sure who or how or when, but they've created this model. Um, and it was very much, and you, once you recognize it, this is why when people say t- things like, oh, um, there's no such thing as educational progress- progressivism, or, and there's no such thing as educational traditionalism, although there's been a d- debate in the literature between these two positions since at least the 19th century, possibly further, people say these two things don't really exist because... Um, you know, sometimes I'll go in and I'll go do group work, and sometimes I'll go in and I'll stand at the front and talk to the kids. Um, which, de- first of all, deflates those um, philosophical positions down to just methods, which they're not. But um, secondly, it kind of denies the experience. So, when I was in the UK teaching in the early two thousands, there was very much this socially constructed view that you've just described of what teaching should be, which broadly aligns with um, late 19th century, early 20th century educational progressivism. It's definitely a thing, but when you point it out and try and talk about it, people are not having that at all. They don't, wanna, they don't, they don't like that discussion.
1: Yeah, I think that's perhaps something um, common to a lot of underlying philosophical ideas. Mary Midgley, Uh, the philosopher had the suggestion that philosophy was like plumbing that as long as it's working you don't even notice it's there you only call for a plumber once it goes wrong and it's the same with philosophy that you can have a lot of beliefs complex beliefs and as long as it's not conflicting with your day-to-day experience or people aren't forward other beliefs you can think it's it's just an observation about the world that there is no philosophy there and it's only when it goes wrong it's only when you have something that your philosophy can't account for or you come across a contradiction in your everyday life that suddenly you need to discuss philosophy and i think in teaching where there's this huge philosophical debate i mean it's been called traditionalism and progressivism since the 20th century but there is there isn't really a cap on how far these ideas go back. I mean, we know Plato was closer to the progressivists than um, Aristotle was. It, it, it's that simple. It's, you, you can't say there was ever a point where everyone in the world agreed what the right side was. It's not going away. And, and again, yeah, you can get a situation where... People live by it day by day. And as long as no one points out the contradictions or it going wrong, then they can say, well, there's no debate going on. And I think that's why people have resented teachers having a voice because the people that are most likely to say that educational philosophy, that doesn't actually work. Are the people trying
0: to put it in place? Well, if you shut down a debate, of course, there is no debate to be had. And... Certainly the first few years I engaged with Twitter, that's very much what it felt like. It felt like there was a project, possi- not, I don't think anyone was coordinating it or anything. I think it was just a sort of natural reaction to try and shut down uh, the, the teachers from speaking these opinions. Um, but it, it ran out of steam um, because they, they just sort of couldn't keep up with the number of teachers who were starting to uh, voice these opinions. And then you had um, things like Teach First and you had academies and that in the UK, which I think gave a very distinctive voice. Everything we have in Australia uh, at the moment uh, in the uh, state education system, which I'm not in, but in the state education system is filtered through the department. Um, And so it's very much like I remember the UK being, but there's now lots of different um, Poles of authority and, and people that can the, the, an academy trust can write a book and all that sort of stuff and I think that's given the UK debate a bit of its flavor the other thing I think which I would want I like I would like to touch on because you're instrumental on, on this is the great sort of war of Ofsted so when I was um, first setting out with the blogging um, Ofsted, which is the English School's Inspectorate, so we've got something similar in New South Wales that's sort of been conjured into being at the moment, I think. Ofsted, the English School's Inspectorate, um, was um, very influential, still is, I suppose, but in a way that was perhaps um, not very helpful. So would you like to um, explain a little bit of the sorts of things that they were getting up to back in uh, 2010, 2012?
1: In a way, it's kind of um, the period where it's contested what they were getting up to because they are a politically controlled body and so things have changed and the pendulum has swung. And originally, they were very traditionalist. Then around 2004, I think, they became this very progressive organisation and they did tell teachers pretty clearly how best to teach. And 2010 is perhaps and to 2012. The key thing about that period is when they stopped saying that's what they were doing. So I can remember in 2009, the um, chief inspector writing a Guardian article or possibly being interviewed in the Guardian about how there was a mission to get rid of boring teachers because if children were bored in class, they weren't learning and things needed to be um, more engaging, more interesting. And, you know, a real clear picture of what a good teacher looked like. After 2010, from the top of Ofsted, the message was there is no one correct teaching method. You can teach in different ways as long as it's effective. And that 2010-2013 period, where I was most active, was a period in which the message from the top of the organisation, the message from inspectors, as expressed in their reports, differed massively. So you could hear one day the chief inspector saying, you can teach this way, and then you could turn to a report that came out afterwards saying it's terrible that they don't that they teach that way that um, the lessons aren't engaging enough there's too much teacher talk and i was involved in showing that the same things were consistently being condemned in reports and i know that politicians read those blogs and started um, challenging of about the values that were being shown by their reports the actual reforms that happened i think are more complicated than just the whistle being blown and suddenly things change there there were ways the organization was set up that meant the leadership of the organization did not have complete control over the values um, enforced by inspectors and there was private companies involved at one point And there was a lot of inspectors that were part-time inspecting and part-time advising schools how to pass inspections. So there was, you know, a real bonus there to be giving particular advice and then enforcing the same advice. And it was amazing how things would get passed around schools that were like, this is what Ofsted are really looking for, even if they say they're not and the inspectors that were also consultants might have been involved in passing that advice around so when they went in they were looking for it so yeah. it, it became this act slightly out of control highly ideological organization and as i say i just got involved in pointing out that it was still ideological and um, there were other people perhaps um, like daisy who i know you've interviewed who wrote in the, about the earlier period where how ideological they are, I think, was pretty explicit right up to the top.
0: Yeah, it's. I, I remember Ofsted inspections, and they generated a lot of heat, but not a huge amount of light. And you just you just try and get through them. So I'd I'd, I'd go through one, and my wife at a different school, she'd go through one, and the inspectors would say bizarre things. But this idea that uh, okay for neoliberal reasons, we can't directly employ all our inspectors. We've got a sort of subcontract to these these companies. But then these companies are then gonna sell schools advice. It's a it, it's a very damaging cycle because it's in their interests to have a thing that they're looking for that they it, can then it wasn't tell even
1: the big companies though that had that. It was the it could you know an individual inspector, not an HMI. But an individual inspector could have two jobs inspection and consultancy and the one job would be to tell schools what they should do and the other job would be to go into not the same school but different different schools and check whether they're doing it and that meant there was always an incentive to come up with new advice to give and always an incentive to check which schools were following it and catch them out so you did have even though it was almost always very progressive, you did have a real cycle of ideas. And the point of being a great school wasn't to have good results or good evidence of learning. It was to be ahead of the game of what the inspectors were gonna look for next. So, I mean, I have a very strong memory of of a bad experience in one school where when I was interviewed, the big thing was AFL and holding up mini whiteboards. And I did an interview lesson with AFL and holding up mini whiteboards. Yep. And they loved it. And I got the job. And then by the end of that term, or maybe it was two terms later, but within a pretty short period of time, I was inspected, or I was observed within the school. And I did the same sort of thing that they'd yeah. given me the job for and yeah. praised, and it was not the right thing because we didn't want me whiteboards and AFL. We wanted um, the class set out in islands with different tables doing different colour work. Ah, oh, the jigsaw. On the top was that and the jigsaw.
0: We had the jigs. We had um, well, I- as a teacher, and he was like um a demigod because he taught geography and he could do this, the jigsaw thing where all the kids went off and did different things, learnt different stuff. And then they came back at the end and they had this plenary where they all shared what they'd learned. And this is what Ofsted wanted. And so we all had to go, he must have had someone sitting at the back of his class every lesson. We all had to go and see him do this jigsaw.
1: I think that was another phase when um, that was in. I, am there when ofsted started to reform at the top there was a phase when the order from the top is we've got to see the um, all kids are having their needs met the everyone's accessing the appropriate curriculum and then i think that got interpreted by the inspectors as differentiation Damn. and it became you must show you differentiate for ability yeah. But somehow it also became the way to do that was split the kids <laughs> across the class by ability and give them all different resources. And, and so, give I the le-
0: less able kids degraded resources so that they can't ever catch up
1: with the more. Yeah, part of it was you had to prove you were teaching kids at the right level. So yeah. you'd have to put on three lesson objectives. Um, and there were, you know, there were different levels of it. it might be all, so, oh, I can't, oh, could, should, or it Maybe. might be all dumb or what it, Yeah. And then the resources would prove it. So there was a lot of production of resources. There was no consistent expectation across the classroom. And my experience was that, well, I left the school because I, I got put on capability, well, no, informal capability, which is when they intensively train you the correct way to teach. Yeah. And I was observed teaching a class maths and that wasn't what I was meant to do. And I had to teach individual tables. Ah, not the whole class, no. And, you know, after being told I was doing it wrong for a couple of lessons, I did what they told me and I did produce the individual sheets. And what I found was that once once you lose the whole class culture and once some of the sheets are on the right level, but not actually appropriate for the class, you get a lot less work done. And I had this observation where I did exactly what I was told and nobody learned a thing. Like, Like some kids had done three questions incorrectly. Because they'd only been given the questions, not because they could do them, but because I had to prove that the questions were a particular level. And it was absolute shambles. And I got the feedback that, yes, I was getting it right now. And that's that's when you know the system is is failing, when you can see kids not learning in front of you and an observer can come in and say you're doing it right. But, you know, every teacher resents an apparently successful lesson being described as inadequate or unsuccessful or not working. But there is nothing more likely to destroy any faith in the system than having a disastrous lesson praised for using the right method, even if it didn't work at all and demonstrably didn't
0: work. Well, it's, it's getting back to the idea of teachers not being master of their own destiny isn't it that that w- what what we're actually reading in the classroom and our expertise uh, is not worth anything it's what the observer thinks um i just on maths teaching so um i i'm a maths teacher but i started up i did a physics degree so i've got a physics background uh, but i teach uh, maths and you i know you come from a, uh, a pure maths background you did a Maths degree, as I understand, so pure mathematics, pure mathematics. So, it yeah, so I'm i'm just applied stuff. Um, why is it, do you think, that people like me who don't have the pure maths background, the technicians who come in and uh, start teaching maths, what, what is it that we get wrong? What are the classic mistakes that we make? Right, well, I
1: don't think you necessarily do. So, I mean, I do comment on the difference between teachers and in particular yeah what difference does it make to have a maths degree but i don't think it's that teachers with a maths degree get it right and teachers without get it wrong and my preference is that there should be a mix because maths is to a large extent an applied discipline and if you use it in different disciplines you get quite different ideas of what it's like and what it's for and it's not that one idea with pure mathematicians is right and the other idea is wrong. Um, the example I always give is that I've heard people say that what they like about maths is that you're, always, you're not after a precise answer, but it's approximation an estimation of the absolute core of maths, getting it roughly enough right to work. I've heard that argued. Yeah. And, of course, if you're an engineer pretty much everything you do as an engineer involves an element of approximation because you cannot measure anything in real life to the an infinite degree and i'm sure it applies in a lot of the sciences as well however you ask a pure mathematician is a great thing about maths that you don't have to be precise and it's it's just not the case at all the lovely thing about maths is that you can be infinitely precise you can write a fraction you can write a cert you can use the symbol for a transcend transcendental number and be completely correct with no fudge factor at all and that is that's distinctive to the discipline of maths so it's not that one of those perspectives is right one is wrong it's just maths is used in different ways And if you want kids to have a rounded maths education, you need all those perspectives. Um, In in the UK, the the majority of maths teachers don't have maths degrees. And I don't mind that as long as they have the mathematical knowledge you you get from doing physics or engineering or whatever. But what worries me is sometimes there's not a mix, that you get a department where there is literally no one in there with a maths degree. And i think that does give a very odd perspective um, but there isn't a simple answer of how you know how can a pure mathematician sort out the perspective of uh, a non-pure mathematician when it when it comes to teaching beyond you know pointing out perhaps some misconceptions are more obvious to a pure mathematician than to an engineer and, i think i mean a, there are people that come into math teaching from other backgrounds that have you know really looked at it in depth uh, i mean i mean chris bolton is, is was a, had a physics degree and you know i don't think there's any maths worth knowing that he's not um able to inform the teaching of uh, so i'm just trying to think when when do i suddenly become the awkward person um i think sometimes it's the technical language because Often in applied disciplines, what the words mean is a shared understanding. Whereas in maths, what the words mean is a written definition saying it exactly. There is, there is no room for fudge. Um, and I think there's perhaps an emphasis on logic in pure mathematics that perhaps doesn't come up in all other disciplines.
0: Um, deductive also, logic rather than the inductive logic of the sciences. Um, Yes, yes. I I think that stuff about approximation I mean as of my training as a physicist we had to estimate the uncertainty in everything that we calculated so it's kind of it's it's hammered into and hammered into you Um, and so I can see that and it's very weird uh, when you go back to pure maths and the answer can be root 2 or something that just seems weird but um, I do start I think there's things like um, an identity doesn't exist in um, the sciences. Um, So those sorts of concepts like identically equal to and things like that um, are the the sorts of things that I think mathematicians possibly have a slightly better understanding of. Um, But I I do think, yeah, I, I think it's, Your point, really, that we should have a good mix across. I suppose what I'm wondering is, you know, some of these really bad ideas we have about maths teaching, and I think you alluded to it at the start, you know, we've got to approximate everything and it doesn't really, there's no right answers. and It's about having a discussion or a debate and all that. Um, Is that just um, the philosophy of educational progressivism enacted in maths, or is it maybe something to do with the fact that maths is taught by people from outside the field?
1: i think outside the field is a factor um if you've never reached a certain level of maths you perhaps can't appreciate certain perspectives and what you just said made me think of um some training in department training i had many years ago now by a maths consultant whose degree was in, in business so not a degree that necessarily had a huge amount of maths content and the starter exercise was he put up this picture of a steamboat on a river where is the maths in this and you could see the reflection of the steamboat in the river so i said my answer reflections that's a mathematical concept that's a you know a transformation makes sense then I picked up my phone and went back to reading Twitter because I'd answered the question. Yeah. Anyway, it turned out that if you're not a pure mathematician, there is maths involved in counting and measuring things in the picture, usually based on, well, obviously you don't actually measure the picture itself, but you imagine how big the thing in the picture is. Interpreting the picture. Yeah. is maths and of course I suppose from a, an applied perspective um th- there's potential that leads to mathematical reasoning you might use maths to work out a quick way to to count something or extrapolate from the picture but it's not obviously maths in fact I wouldn't say, yeah. wouldn't say it was maths but it's um, counting things isn't it
0: I, it does, it reminds me though, a question, so I had an undergraduate question, undergraduate physics student, uh, estimate the kinetic energy of a hurricane, um, and you can do it, but it's, yeah, it's a very much an applied question that, it's not a pure maths question, you have to use maths to get some kind of reasonable answer, but the reasonableness of the answer, that's all, that's very much the, the science and mindset. There
1: wasn't a lo- there wasn't really a lot of extrapolation going on beyond no. the, if we, if we count how many windows on one side of the boat, we can assume it's the same on the other. <laughs> and yeah, It really was just counting and thinking vague things about measuring. That's math. Well, a lot of that's, this, um,
0: a lot of this uh, really sort of um, funky maths that people do, when they're, they're talking about, you know, oh, we've got to do estimating and we've got to have a discussion in the debate. What a lot of these methods really boil down to is counting things. So when you get kids to figure out their own way to work something out, they just they usually end up counting stuff. And of course, the reason we developed um, mathematical algorithms is because it's a more powerful way of achieving the same result than just counting things. So, but that's what you often is. They talk about it in very highfalutin language, but that's what it really. Devolves
1: into often in, when you. Yeah, I mean, the- I think I went quite a way away from your question. <laughs> and i was now bringing it back. I mean, does it connect to wider philosophies in maths teaching? I do think that when you have that very vague notion of maths and the emphasis on its application, you do. It does lend itself to certain approaches and certain claims about maths. So I think a, a progressive approach to maths teaching would probably say that it doesn't matter how you get to a solution. Whereas a pure mathematician has a certain respect for elegance. If you can prove something in two lines rather than 50 and running a a computer program, that means something. And if you can convince yourself of something by drawing a diagram, that's not, anywhere near mm. writing a mathematical proof of something it there, there is that distinction and so I, th- I do think yeah the idea that all methods are valid and well in some cases all answers possible. are valid even patently wrong mm. ones it, once you've said that the great thing about maths is you can estimate then yeah. Yeah. um the you know do you establish the best rules for estimation because there are some that you can rigorously enforce, but they were usually accessible about estimation.
0: But no one ever uses those. They don't use the ones I used to use in my undergraduate physics to estimate the size of the uncertainty and the thing I just calculated, which used to drive me nuts. So on the case, on the point about wrong answers, I would like to shimmy into um, talking a little bit about Twitter. Now, anyone that's encountered you on Twitter will know that um, you're something of a force. Um, I see things I disagree with on Twitter a lot. And sometimes I engage with them. Sometimes people will tweet things at me um, that uh, are ridiculous. like like, um, Or I'll, I think they're ridiculous. They're not objectively ridiculous. It's my perception that they're ridiculous. But they'll tweet. And I'll look at it and I'll go, no, I can't be bothered with that <laughs> and I'll just ignore the tweet or and I'll move on and I'll do something else. But you're quite well known for engaging in these discussions and um, very politely, um, I would say, but a lot of people would maybe disagree, um, I would say you very politely and patiently um, respond and, and point out all the flaws in people's reasoning and, and logic. And I think the fact that you're pointing out flaws in their reasoning and logic is where they, why they perceive that as not being polite, um, perhaps. But um, why do you do that? Like, what,
1: <laughs> I sometimes think... I've got, I've got two motives, so remind me to get to the second one. Yes, once I, I will do. The first, I think the first thing is, I do have a bit of a thing about truth. Um, and perhaps that comes from being the pure mathematician, an yeah. approximation not good enough um the jesse singal blog that dis- that distinguishes between a an accuracy bias and a right side bias and if you if you have a right side bias you don't really care if everything you say turns out to be true you might not even know if it's true you just n- care whether it pushes the right agenda and then yes. an accuracy bias is when the facts actually matter. I think there's an old adage in journalism, isn't there, about um, comment is free, but facts are sacred. I think it's the online version of that. And I will see something that is factually wrong, regardless of whether it supports my own agenda or not, and hammer it. And not only that, I will expect others to have some respect for the truth. So if they say, you cannot trust this person, he hates the disabled, I will say that, that they don't hate the disabled. That's not actually true. You have no evidence for this. And if you come back to me with, ah, but they're a racist, I won't start a discussion of whether that's true. I will be willing to say, um, can we just acknowledge that you made a false accusation? for the original comment and that's another thing that comes up a lot a lot of why are you defending so and so and when it comes down to it I'll defend anybody I'll defend the devil himself because if it's not true then it doesn't matter how evil the person you lied about is you're still lying about them So that's that's how I take it. I I, I want the truth established. And if once the truth is established, oh, it turns out it's easier for me to support my views than someone else to support their views, well, that's a point in favour of my views. I can definitely think of things that have been claimed that would support my views that turned out not to be true. So I'm a big advocate of... Well, that's exaggerating, but I support the idea of teaching classical languages. I I did Latin at school. I thought it was a very rewarding thing to do. And there was a there's there's this big tradition in the early 20th century of saying that if you learn Latin, it make you um, better at other languages or better at thinking in general. Now, I'd love to have evidence for that because that would support you know something that I support. But there isn't evidence for that. In fact, the evidence is that learning any language helps you with other languages. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's not necessarily those particular languages that, that, that are best for that. And, and the evidence that language learning improves you know, critical thinking or cognitive ability in general um, or any anyway, second language learning, and it, I, you know, I don't think it's there. And I'd love it to be there. In the same way, I'd love to think that, you know, if you study maths, you, you immediately become a genius in all other disciplines. The fact that things I like don't necessarily transfer to other disciplines isn't convenient for me, but I'm not going to claim it. Yeah, I, I've got
0: one like that. With, um, when I first started um, blogging, I was very into Hattie because uh, one of the things that I read, which really got me going, uh, interested in education research, got to thank him for that. And Hattie's meta-analyses, and uh, I'd write quite favorably. I'd quote some of his effect sizes for direct instruction, um, and so oh, does direct instruction is effective because blah blah blah. Hattie's meta-analysis. I now do not accept the methodology behind Hattie's meta- meta-analysis, so I have to come out and say so. So something that would support potentially a position that I would hold, I, I won't draw on that evidence because I don't think it's valid, and I think you have to. You have to be prepared to do that. Otherwise, as you say, you're just on this right side bias and, and you'll, just, you'll just go with anything provided it supports your
1: cause. Yeah. Um, so, that, as I say, is something I push for. And um, I hate it when people boast of being blocked. But if I correct someone's fact, like, you know, something that, that's just a, a sheer matter of fact and when corrected I get blocked, that immediately tells me that person has a particular attitude to the truth that's not going to be helpful for future debates. If you, if you cannot cope with being corrected, then you, you cannot learn from debate. debate. So that's the one reason of yeah. why I'm, I'm pretty stubborn. And oh, sorry, I should comment on that because I often, often, I often see people use as a crit- criticism I mean, of me, but in general, why are these people so sure of their views? And it was always a baffling <laughs> argument to me, because if I wasn't sure of something, why would I say it? You know, if, if I don't have confidence in an opinion, I should probably keep it to myself. Otherwise, yeah. I might make a fool of myself. I certainly don't want to argue in favour of an opinion that I know cannot be rationally supported. And yet, there were people saying, oh, well, if you really believe that's true, that just shows um, a problem with you. And the only implication I can really get from that is that they express a lot of opinions, not actually sure that what they're saying is true. Mm. And again, I think that's a huge difference of perspective. I think there's a lot of people in education that do that. Yeah. well, people that when you say why do you think that cannot answer, I find odd. People who, when you ask them, what exactly do you mean by that? And I don't mean arguing over individual words because that's confusing matters. But you know, if in a whole sentence, what does that mean? Are you actually saying this or this? If they can't answer, you have to say, well, why did you say it? Do you know what you meant or not? So, as I say, that's one big factor of just that honesty. That yeah. If we're going to have a useful debate, if we're going to get to the truth about anything to do with teaching, you probably have to commit to not telling people stuff that you don't think is true. Yeah. Right. The other one, and perhaps this is more specific to a pure mathematician or someone with an interest in philosophy, I'm fascinated as to where you go once you turn out to be wrong. I mean, part of the reason I try not to post stuff that I'm not sure about is because I don't like discovering I'm wrong. But if someone discovers that I'm wrong, I'm either gonna have to thank them or, or if I'm annoyed, ashamed, I might go silent. But there's this huge constituency, and this is probably why I'm most hated. There's a huge constituency But once you point out they've got something wrong, it doesn't matter, you know, how perfectly logical and unassailable the argument or how factual the matter was, there is huge outrage. And of course, with my maths background, people that lie with statistics, it's it's not what they want to hear that, well, did you know that's not how you calculate that kind of statistic or that's not the usual interpretation or do you realize that there's a probability attached to that that that's the kind of thing they don't want to hear and and i will see where they're going to go with being wrong and obviously hostility is one and abuse and and very very common are are objections to tone and and ad hominems. people often have the idea of just insults but anything that refers to the person Saying it, rather than to the thing itself, is an ad hominem. So the thing I mentioned earlier about why do you think you're right is an ad hominem. You could even have quite a a nice ad hominem, like, oh, you're only saying that because you're very caring. But it still says they're wrong, but only refers to them. So you get a lot of ad hominems. You get a lot of, you're a bad person for telling me this inconvenient fact, even though it's true, even though I was wrong. It's bad that you corrected me. You also have the people that double down. So even with the evidence in front of them that they're wrong, they'll try and prove that they were somehow still right. And then, as I say, I think this is a mathematician, a pure mathematician speaking. There's the ones that will appeal to how do you know something is wrong? Um, (laughs) And... Most of the time, if you want to prove something's wrong, you prove that it, it, it contradicts something that's true or it implies something that is untrue. Yeah. And obviously the best you can get with that, because, you know, how do you know these things that were implied are, are true? Or I'm sorry, the thing that implied is untrue or it contradicts something that's true. You have to appeal to truths so that you expect the other person to accept. And so you always have, when you're doing that kind of rational argument, the possibility of maintaining your original position by denying stuff that's obviously true. (laughs) And some people, to save face, will will go into the most outrageous claims. And I am fascinated. (laughs) At what point do you claim that... Do you accept that a point that is obviously true is false? And the famous one, and I think the person that claimed it is no longer with us, but in an argument about phonics, it was claimed that sounding out words um, didn't correspond to the skill of reading a word and I pursued it, and eventually it was declared that dog isn't a word. Yes, I remember that. And, and you know, if I go back through, it's like, what are the most, that, that's always the example when things have just got absolutely ridiculous, yeah. but I'm always fascinated. Can you get people to reason themselves into saying something completely ridiculous rather than accept they could have been mistaken at the start. The, the one I, I see a lot at the moment
0: is guilt by association arguments. So if you say... Um, yeah, so if you say, I, I think blah, 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 then uh, rather than um, uh, addressing what you've said, they'll say, ah, oh, but these bad people think blah, 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 or these bad people use the word that you just used. Um, so I can, therefore, I don't have to address your argument at all. Um, I was actually, I think I was, I was tweeting about that today and I did it in the style of, uh, Galileo's, uh, dialogue. I don't know if I can find it. It doesn't matter. Um, so yeah, my whole, my whole internet has crashed. I don't know why. Ah, there we are. Um, where is he? Here you are. Yeah. So, so you don't, know, you'd be familiar with Galileo's. So, Salviati, why can we not perceive Earth's motion? A man below, sorry, I'll do it properly. Salviati, why can we not perceive Earth's motion? A man below deck on a moving ship cannot perceive its motion. And Simplicio says the moving ship argument is a classic trope of heretics. And then Segredo says, "Could you just address the point, Simplicio?" So that's the that was my attempt at trying to illustrate the guilt by association argument today. Um, so you've been blogging. I've been reading your blog. Came out early this morning, Australian time. Uh, That would have been yesterday evening, your time, probably. Um, And it's about achievement for all. Yeah, so achievement for all. So would you tell us a little bit about
1: that and um, then people can go and read your blog? Um, Who knows what achievement for all actually is? I mean, it's, it's an approach to school improvement, but I think the word used is bespoke, which means I think it can mean different things to different schools. Schools and um, what I looked at, you know, the little research I did for what it is, um, it didn't make it clear to me at all what it was. But what fascinated me was the randomised controlled trial has been run for this program, and it's not really clear what it is. <laughs> I, as I say, I think <laughs> bespoke means you're, you're never going to get a simple answer to okay. what it is. Um, So, yeah, but you know whether you've you've paid for the programme or not, I guess. Yes, I guess. Um, Anyway, the results came back and schools that were in the programme, their students were making a significantly um, reduced amount of progress compared with the schools in the control group. And I'm sort of cautious because EEF research... They both have a very um, static methodology that means it. <laughs> you have to comply with certain things that might not be the most important thing, but you might end up ignoring certain other things. And you know, I will delete the blog if someone can come back and say, "Oh, this is one of the things where the EEF missed an important point." But the. It, it was an exceptional result it's it's i think it was the joint lowest of a hundred things they'd looked at well it's so
0: extraordinary it's, to find a negative result because um you know going back to hacking it's Hattie, more common
1: in rct yeah
0: than, so. yeah it is more common in rcts but usually you'd expect um you know just the fact that we're we're in an intervention to have some kind of positive psychological effect maybe i don't know um so the fact that they apparently went backwards compared to a control who presumably got nothing no um i don't know so that that is quite an extraordinary um result and it's yeah but as you say the the eef it's a strange piece they got a lot of money um and then it always strikes me they're not quite sure exactly what to do with it um but uh, yeah okay well everyone can have, go and have a look at that uh, blog and have a read for yourself and what one of the um uh, one of the things that uh, the people associated with Achievement for All um, have been commenting on in the press over the last few years is exclusions. So school exclusions are a hot topic in uh, the UK, just like they are in Australia. Um, and uh, there's, there's always this debate. Um, and it, it's I, sup- I find it hard to believe that anyone thinks there should be no reason to, to exclude a, Child from school, but a lot of people will sort of rhetorically take that position.
1: Yeah, it's a bit like um, abolishing the police, isn't it? That you can say it and then challenge. Well, I don't literally mean no exclusion. I don't literally mean abolish the police. Um, The Martin Bailey tactic, really, of having two positions: one you're willing to defend, one you're not. You you express the indefensible one, switch to the other. Um, but there are some groups that are pretty explicit about how, they, how there should be no exclusions and um, in Scotland, they massively reduced exclusions to the point where if they weren 't zero, it might as well have been so that you know it is on the, and i 've worked many years ago in a local authority that just declared no exclusions no permanent exclusions, so it 's not um an unknown position for people to take although strangely enough when you say does that mean you keep sex offenders in a school with their victims they suddenly say that's not a valid question
0: well they'll say you're you're pointing to extreme examples you're you're pointing to Mm. but when when you point to extreme example you're trying to
1: delineate where where the boundaries of the argument it's it's the mathematician in me isn't it if something's a universal principle one exception is enough to disprove it. Yes, and I think when it, if people are going to put forward the position of no exclusions, you immediately come across. Well, what about this case? But I think you also have the thing if they say there should always be fewer exclusions. You have to say, well, what do you want to ignore? What are you now going to permit? Um, and again, it's something people are not keen to answer. Um, and yeah, I mean, it relates to Achievement for All because the pe- there were people involved in Achievement for All arguing against exclusions. And the exclusion debate in the last few years has had this weird kind of distortion because most head teachers do not want to put their name to the statement, I am willing to kick kids out. It's, it's not the done thing. Um, there are some that will say it quietly. There are some that be a bit braver, but it's, it's, you do not want to put your school in the fire, in line. So you don't tend to get school leaders volunteering to argue for exclusions, even though we know that the people that most strongly disagree with the idea that there are too, more, too many exclusions are secondary school leaders. So we know that in the profession, exclusions are permanent. Exclusions are accepted and supported but there's a lack of people willing to debate that in public. And so the debate ends up being dominated by non-teachers. And while there are non-teachers who will argue um, for the necessity of exclusions, that includes politicians, I might add, and I think it includes a lot of them who have looked into the issue, Um, there's probably a majority of people commenting in the press on exclusions that don't have... Well, what's the expression? Don't have any skin in the game. And I've talked about ad hominems being a bad attack. So they're not not wrong because they're not teachers. But in a debate where only those who are completely immune from the bad effects of the policy are involved in debating it, you get a massive distortion. And there's absolute anger if you dare go against that consensus and i think and it's i think it's a,
0: it's a very top the idea that we should reduce exclusions like as a policy that works from the top down we're going to put pressure on a local authority or whatever to reduce exclusions I, I think it's it's looking at the problem from the wrong end i i would i would like to for there to be fewer exclusions but the way you do that is to have less need for them because you've got good uh, behavior policies in place at, at, at the origin and good if we use a response to intervention terminology a very good tier one and then some high quality tier two and tier three interventions that deal with problems and I think a lot of these schools that have come in for criticism like Michaela in in London what they've actually done is they've set up A really good tier one system that means that that they built a culture that and so what you're doing is you're you're tackling the same problem but you're tackling it from a bottom-up way rather than sort of trying to impose um, edicts from the top down I don't know what you think of that
1: yeah perhaps the analogy would be um, smoking and chemotherapy but no one's saying that you shouldn't reduce smoking however banning chemotherapy for lung cancer patients is not the way you'd do it you know you can't just say well i mean chemotherapy might be necessary but why did these people smoke in the first place you have to accept that prevention might be um, better than dealing with with the situation afterwards but Limiting the power to deal with the situation reactively doesn't actually ensure more prevention. I don't think that if you banned chemotherapy tomorrow, everyone would stop smoking. And the same um, logic, you know, if you ban exclusions tomorrow, well, schools will prevent poor behaviour perfectly in other ways. On top of that, the methods the anti-exclusion lobby want people to use to stop bad behaviour tend to be ones that they believe very strongly work that are not completely convincing to those in the profession. They tend to be, well, back to if you just love the kids enough, um, um, and if you just identify the the unmet need that caused them to misbehave, because kids only misbehave, because some external force has stopped them being morally perfect. um, That's the consensus. Um, So if you meet their unmet needs, or you're just a really good teacher, then the behaviour will be transformed. Um, And again, I think that part of it is is another reason why it's so bad that you don't hear more people from within schools getting involved in that debate. Yeah, well, hopefully one day,
0: um, and we seem to have come full circle, so it might be a good time to uh, to, to draw things close. Hopefully one day when, um, when we switch on the news and we see a teacher on there, they'll be talking about um, school behaviour policies or the best ways to teach maths. Um, and we'll all be listening and so will the rest of the world. So let's hope we get to that point. Look, thank you ever so much for your time, uh, Andrew. Um, thanks for all that you've done for blogging and for um reposting that blog of mine all those years ago and um hopefully we might have you back on again if you if you're if you're willing at some point in the future Very well thanks for speaking to me cheers